Well, you guys, Happy New Year. Has it been a good week? You had a woo-woo? Yeah, it's been a decent week. I mean, did you feel like you were hopping onto I-5 with no on-ramp? That's how it felt in our house. It's like, what's happening right now? Um, but how lovely it was to have it. Oh, Jim, I can't not think about your leg right now. I'm sorry, man. I hope that wasn't from putting on lights on the roof. Okay, okay, sorry. I'm in this moment where if something pops out to me, I'm going to call you out. Good morning, Cherry. <laughs> okay, yep, I got some notes. It's a really good idea for me to follow them because the reason I'm actually here is not to give shout-outs. It's to give announcements. Um, so, first of all, life groups are starting up for the winter quarter. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel dry and barren? It's time. Let's go. Let's do this. If you are not in a group, this is a great time for you to sign up. If you were in a group last quarter, there's no need for you to sign up for that. You're, if you haven't let your leaders know that you're planning to continue, that would be a really great idea. Um, but if you're new, this is such a great time to join. Um, these are not well-established groups where you're the newbie and you're like, whoa, you've all been here 48 years because you're doing life. You're in for life. It's not you're in for life when you're in a group. It is that we do life together in these groups. And we do them a quarter at a time. And that just makes it easy for people to decide to make a full commitment for a quarter. And so this quarter runs through um, March, the end of March, I believe. Yeah, I'm getting a nod on that one. Good. My information is true. Um, and so we have men's groups. We have women's groups. We have mixed groups. Um, all sorts of groups. So if you are interested, pretty please sign up on your Connect card, or you can text the word group, group, no groups, just group, to that Brickview number, and we will connect with you and get um, you all the information that you'll need and find a, a good fit for you. If you are currently in a group and you know of someone that isn't, this is a really good time to invite somebody in too. That's a really hospitable thing that we can do for each other is to invite each other into our communities. Um, through the end of this month, we are going to continue with our gift card drive for Vision House and for Cedar Way. And so if you have some gift cards that you got over the Christmas holiday and you're like, I just really like to pay that forward and bless somebody else with those, um, we will receive those and we will pass those along to Vision House and to Cedar Way. And what they use those for is um, usually Christmas is like a big push where everyone does a lot of stuff. But come January, February, and March, it tends to get a little bit lean. And so that just kind of helps during those lean times for them to be able to give gas cards or Target cards to people or groceries from Fred Meyer. So any of those types of things, you can also do Starbucks, you can do restaurants. Um, those are just really sweet blessings. So thank you in advance. There's a little box in the lobby and you can drop those in there. Um, as well, we have our Cedar Way and Vision House distribution that we do once a month. And that is coming not this Tuesday, but the next on January 16th. And the list of items um, is distributed through a digital sign-up. And so if you text the, that word there, um, 
helping, there it is, there it is, helping to the Brookview number, you will automatically get pushed that list and you can see it. If you're already signed up for that at one point, you will get that text message forever until you reply, stop. Like, just stop. I know, it just seems so harsh. Um, every time that I see a stop come in, I'm like, hmm, really? <laughs> feel rejected just a little bit, but I understand you have a lot of things coming into your phone. Am I right, Keller? You have to minimize the apps, right? This guy is so good with his apps. He takes one look at my phone and goes, are you kidding me right now? Like, why do you need folders and subfolders of the folders? I'm like, I don't know, maybe I need the candy cane creator. <laughs> anyway, all right, that's it. We have a connect card. We love to hear from you. Fill it out, it's on your seat. There are baskets in two different places in the lobby for you to drop those. And if you're watching from home, we love it when you fill out your online connect card. That's it. Yeah, that's disturbing. <laughs> well, Happy New Year, you guys. My gosh. Gosh, it's good to be back together. I, uh, you know, we, we haven't been in church for a while, so I've been sitting around home just like, come here, kids. I want to preach at you. <laughs> got all this pent-up energy, so ladies, hold on to your hair. Here we go. So, you guys, this, um, this fall for me was, and, and for many of us, just a, a beautiful time of, of prayer for our, for our community. We focused on it at church, in life groups, uh, at the prayer rooms that we had here. And I'm hearing so many stories of so many of you engaging in prayer more consistently or more deeply. And it's so good. So as we move into the new year, I, I want to build off of that a little bit. A vital component of prayer is that we not only talk, we what? We listen. So we allow God to guide us, right, to speak to us, to communi communicate with us. And we begin to, to be able to discern God's voice from all the other voices that are coming at us. And in our world, the, the noise is deafening. There's, there's so many voices shouting at us, so many voices telling us the way. You know, this is what's good. This is what's bad. This is what, this is what makes you valuable. This is the way. This is, this is what will make you happy. This is the good life. Pursue it, indulge it, sacrifice for it. And, and scripture calls this like conglomeration of voices when they don't line up with the voice of God. It calls, calls those voices the world. 
And then there's our own inner voice, right? We got this whole other voice thing going on. Our, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, like our heart, our mind, our soul, which is a mixed bag. Because some of our longings are, are good and true and pure and, and God-given. And others are selfish and destructive. They're, they're disordered. And those dark ones, the authors of Scripture call the flesh. And then Scripture insists that there is like a third force in play. Um, Paul writes this in Ephesians. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Oof. And Jesus and the New Testament authors ultimately trace, trace evil to three main sources, three different voices, okay? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Come on. Now, uh, around here, if you've been around here a lot, we, we don't spend a lot of time talking about, thinking about, like, spiritual warfare. But as we contemplate hearing God's voice more, we need to at least consider the sources and the origins of, of all the noise. And so to begin, I want to go back to the original source of the noise, the devil. Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil comes in John chapter 8. Um, and in this scene, Jesus is teaching the disciples, but there's a much larger crowd just kind of listening in, and it's filled with all kinds of different people. And as is often the case, there are many religious leaders kind of scattered among the crowd. So here we go, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, okay, to those that were following him, disciples, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, right, or my apprentices. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? set you free. So at this point, the crowds and the religious leaders are listening, and the religious leaders, they start chiming in. They start, they start objecting. So just so you know, if I'm talking, don't do that. No heckling in here. But they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone, which is weird. Have you read the Old Testament? It was like a 400 years in Egypt, and at this particular moment, they're kind of enslaved to Rome. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, a child, belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be, say it with me, free indeed. Jesus continues. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. And we're left to wonder, well, who's their father? Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, which is, that's Jesus for wrong answer. <laughs> if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And again, we're left wondering, who's their father? 
We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, wait for it, the devil. Not really what you want to hear from Jesus. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. How are we doing this morning, you guys? <laughs> Welcome to church. I'm, I'm so happy you're here. Like, give me a bullhorn. Let's go. So right out of the gate, let's notice a few things about Jesus' take on the devil. First off, for Jesus, let's start here. Number one, there is a devil. The, the Greek word translated devil means the slanderer or accuser. And the devil is one of many names used by Jesus and used by the New Testament writers for a creature that we read about all through the scriptures. Jesus also calls him the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the serpent of old. And notice, these are, these are, these are like, all of these are titles. Okay, they're not like proper names. Sometimes we, we hear Satan and we think it's a proper name like Bill. It's not a proper name. It's a description or a title, the Satan, and it means the adversary or the accuser. To Jesus, this creature has tremendous power and influence in our world. Like there are three different times. Jesus refers to this creature as the ruler of this world. So let's be clear. For Jesus, there is a devil. He's, he's not a myth. He's not a figment of the imagination. He's not a holdover from a superstitious pre-scientific age. To Jesus... He's an invisible but very real intelligence, and he's the evil behind so much evil in our soul and in the world. In John 8, he's, he's the evil behind the corrupt religious leaders and their systems, right? To the religious leaders of his own culture, he says, your father isn't Abraham, your father isn't God, your father is the devil, and then Jesus does the same kind of thing with the Roman Empire. He says, there it is, guys, the Roman Empire. Thank you. He says, the Roman Empire is, is evil, yes. It is a human evil or an institutional evil, but behind that evil, there's a whole other layer of evil at play. And I want to say, if you're, if you're here this morning, and this, like, this just sounds crazy to you, you're like, okay, Jesus, like you were a great teacher. You, you have lots of fantastic things to say about love and kindness, generosity, like the golden rule and forgiving one another and all that. Like, that's great. You have great stuff to say, Jesus. But, but this nonsense about, about the devil is ridiculous. Like, because now we know better. We have Wikipedia. And we have AI. And we have science, right? So the devil, really? Come on. And I just want to say, if, like, if that's you, or if that's partially you, man, do I get that. I get it. 
Um, and talking about the devil sounds crazy. And so if that's you today, I just want to ask you to suspend judgment and just consider something along the way today. What if Jesus knows better than you or I the true nature of reality? Like what if Jesus and the ancient writers of the scriptures and the many great teachers down through the millennia and to this day millions of people in the East and in Africa and in South America, what if they have a lens into a dimension of reality that we in this Western secular world have become blind to? So all I ask is you suspend judgment and try to remain open to the possibility. Because for Jesus, number one, there is a devil. Okay, secondly for Jesus, and he was clear, for the devil, his end goal is death. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. The aim of this creature is to destroy life. And the authors of scripture insist that he is at war with God himself. He's at war with God's good and beautiful vision for the world. The reason our mind and our soul and our society and our world so often feel like a war zone is simply because they are. So to become a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, is to side with Jesus in a war against a very real darkness. So for Jesus, number one, there is a devil. Number two, his end goal is death. And finally, number three, his primary means is lies. So if his end goal is to tear down everything that's good, to destroy life, to destroy all that is beautiful, his primary means is lies. So, like, please hear this. The principal way the devil influences our world is through deception, through lies. Um, can we get verses 44, 45 back up on the screen? The devil, uh, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies, like the origin point of deception itself. In fact, Jesus says lies are his native language. And, and we need to let this sink in deeply because this is not how a lot of people envision like spiritual warfare or opposing the devil. Uh, we often think of, of Satan like attacking us by throwing problems at us, right? So, I mean, you listen to people talk about, think, listen to the way that, that spiritual warfare comes up in the conversations of people that follow Jesus. You hear people say stuff like, man, I was really under attack this week from the devil. And you're like, really? That sounds serious. What went down, man? Well, my alarm didn't go off, and I overslept on Sunday? Wow, that was Satan? Like, are you sure? Yeah, definitely Satan. I was under attack. No, man, it gets worse. I was on the drive to church, and I got into a fight with my wife. It was Satan. And you're like, huh, well, maybe, I, I mean, maybe that was just you, man. I mean, you're kind of an idiot. I'm not sure that you can just blame the devil for that, right? Or, or people say stuff like, oh, man, just I'm in a war. Like, I got a flat tire on my way to work this week. It's just an attack from Satan. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> you've, you, you've had that. 
I mean, you're like, you mean you're listening to people and you're like, okay, but maybe it was just like a flat tire, like it happens, right? I mean, for many people, the thinking goes like this. Satan's primary strategy to defeat us is throwing problems at us. He, he like gets in the way of all the good that we're trying to do because we're all just really good-hearted, altruistic, loving, generous, kind people all the time. Amen. Amen. Hmm. I remember uh, before we, we moved here to start Brookview, um, Jen and I led a group for young couples at our church in Bellingham. And Jen's dad, who is a very devoted follower of Jesus, somebody I really respect, but he had this nasty habit of always calling us right in the middle of group. Now, those of you that are under 35 or so, you won't believe this. But in 1998, we did not have cell phones with silent vibrate features. We did have this amazing cutting edge new technology call called caller ID. So the phone would ring and everyone in the group would go silent and Jen would see on the caller ID that it was her dad and she would pick up the phone and she would say, yes, Satan. <laughs> And Jen's poor dad, he'd be like, oh, oh no, oh, oh, it's your group night. I did it again, because he'd do it like every week. <laughs> now, okay, Jen was 100% kidding, but everybody in the group got it. He got it. Everybody kind of laughed, but the group mostly laughed nervously. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this sort of reflects how people think of spiritual attacks, of like every problem or distraction or roadblock or you know anything that gets in the way of life is is satan and often it becomes like this this christian paranoia or maybe we think of spiritual warfare as like demon possession i know what it looks like it looks like the exorcist movies you know or or maybe we envision some kind of affliction you know a disease that comes on out of nowhere or maybe a natural disaster or maybe a demon freaking out a child in the middle of the night and so we have these ideas about how the devil wages war in our world. And, and there may be some truth in some of that stuff. Okay, I'm not saying that Satan never engages in any of that stuff. Here's, here's all I'm saying. Please hear me on this. In Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, he doesn't mention any of that. Instead, it's an intellectual debate with the thought leaders of the day, and the discussion is strictly about truth and lies. Jesus says, speaking to the most esteemed religious and thought leaders of his day, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So let's step back. 30,000 feet. For Jesus, number one, there is a devil, and he has tremendous influence in our world. Number two, his end goal is death. The death, the death of souls, of relationships, of love, of beauty, of societies, and more. And number three, his primary means is lies. His primary strategy against you, your family, our society, 
is deception. It's lies. The, like the demon and the disease and the flat tire on the way to church, all of that is like fourth, fifth, sixth tier stuff. So now like before we move on to the next thing, let me, I want to clear something up. Some of you might be wondering, wait, why did Jen bother to answer the phone when her dad called in the middle of group? I mean, why didn't she just let him leave a message? Like, wasn't it just like way more distracting to pick up the call? And again, if you're under 35, <laughs> this probably makes no sense. But in 1998, there was also this amazing technology called the answering machine. And so when a person left a message, everyone in the room could hear the message. And Jen's dad is like this uber creative, funny guy. And so he loved to leave obnoxiously long, <laughs> colorful messages. So it was safer and far less distracting to just pick up the phone. Okay, back to spiritual warfare. The devil's go-to strategy is lies or deception. And so spiritual warfare is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily a battle to believe truth over lies. And this leads us to a really important question. What is truth? I mean, it's the question that Pilate asked Jesus before condemning him to death. And the best definition I know of truth, you guys, is this. Truth equals reality. And a great definition of reality is what you run into when you are wrong. So like if I say, I believe I can fly, and then I walk off the top of a building, reality is what I hit a few seconds later, and a whole lot of pain, right? That's a cliche like a dose of reality, or the cold hard truth, right? So if truth equals reality, then what, what are lies? Lies then are unreality. So when we say something is a lie, what we mean is that statement, that claim, that tweet, that whatever, doesn't correspond to reality. And psychologists tell us that, that we all live from what they call mental maps of reality. So like in the same way that we all have mental maps for our route to work or the route to the store or route to church or whatever, we actually have mental maps for all of life, for our sexuality for money, for power, for love and romance, for marriage and family and parenting and how to manage time and what life is all about. And our mental maps are simply a collection of ideas. And so what are ideas? Well, ideas by definition are simply assumptions about reality. So they are like a theory or a working theory of how life actually works. And most of the time, they're, they're having to do with the question, what is the best route to happiness? So every day, we all, like follower of Jesus or not, we navigate a world of ideas. Most of our life is ideas, right? Happiness is an idea. Democracy is an idea. Human rights is an idea. E equals MC squared is an idea. Gravity is an idea. Theology is a collection of ideas about God and, and how the world works. And our ideas then coalesce to form a mental map by which we navigate our day-to-day. -day. So you might be an atheist, you might be a Christian, you might be a Buddhist, you might be an agnostic, 
or whatever, but your ideas, whatever combination of ideas you happen to hold, form the mental maps that you use to navigate the world. Your mental maps may be accurate or they may be inaccurate. They may lead you toward flourishing or away from it. So great philosopher, great Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard says very succinctly, we live at the mercy of our ideas. Our ideas about God, about our humanity, about our sexuality, about love, money, about where to go to find happiness, about what makes a person valuable and lovable, about the things in life that matter most. Okay, we live at the mercy of our ideas. So when we believe truth, then what happens is we show up to reality well. But when we believe lies, we cannot show up to reality in a way that's congruent with reality. And this is why Jesus continued to insist in one way or another, the more our mental maps align with reality, the more we live in and by truth, the more we will come fully alive. So let's go back to the devil and what he's doing in the world. Jesus calls the devil a liar. He calls him the father of lies. And he's referencing that famous story from Genesis 3. Okay, you guys know the one, right? The one with Adam and Eve and the talking snake. So, okay, think about, think about the story. The, the core issue in the story. When the, when the serpent enters the scene to take down humans, it doesn't come at them with a disaster or a scary vision. It doesn't come at them with a flat tire or an alarm that doesn't go off or a distraction of some kind or even like disease or pain. It just comes at them with an idea. And it's not just any idea. It's a lie. His assault on humanity is a deception. It's a lie that's so subtle and so dangerous that it actually changes everything. Many of you guys know I, I follow the uh, Moravian Bible reading plan. How many of you guys follow that, by the way, generally? Get them up there. Be proud. My gosh. So if you follow that, you know it, it wrapped up. It's like a two-year plan, and it wrapped up in December, and it's just started over in January. So January 1, we're all back in Genesis, baby. And as many of you know, when I can, I, I like to watch the Bible Project videos that correspond to the Moravian text that I'm reading. So this past, past week, I watched the, the video on Genesis chapters 1 to 11. And you guys, it is so stinking good. So Genesis 1 to 11 is God's explanation to us, to all of humanity, for how we got where we are. It addresses these massive questions like, why does the world look the way that it does? How, how did a good God end up with such a broken, messy world? And is there any hope? Does God have any kind of plan to do something about it? And these are vital human questions. And how we answer them profoundly affects how we live. So I want to show you the seven-minute video. You knew that was coming. Of Genesis 1 to 11. And you guys, I just think the visual uh, depiction of this is really, really helpful. Kepler, can you kill... You got that? <laughs> so the catastrophic devastation is all fallout from the original deception, right? The lie. So let me, let me just read, read those few verses. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the, 
from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, actually God didn't say that, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, and the spiral is in effect. And Jesus ties the devil's strategy of, uh, of lies in the world, like today, to this foundational story in Genesis. Now, let me address something um, that I think is important about all of this. If, if, you're like a, if you're a skeptic, right, or you're, you're new to the Bible, this story sounds absurd. Like as a late modern Westerner, it's, it's really easy to write off this story. It's, it's ancient literature that we have no equivalent for. And then with this story to write off the Bible as a whole, right, as weird, as nonsense. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a talking snake on page three. And so for a lot of people, it's just like, I'm done, <laughs> right? I'm out. I can't take this seriously. But, but this is a story that has been debated by great thinkers probably more than any other story in human history. And there are wide-ranging views among sincere followers of Jesus. There are various views about the genre of literature that this is. Is it intended as history to be read and interpreted 100% literally? Or does this story categorize better as ancient Near Eastern imagery, symbols, representations that are true, but a bit allegorical in nature? Is this story intended to be understood metaphorically, like allegorically? And the debates concern really what kind of literature this is intended to be. Is it, an, is it an apologetic response to other ancient Near Eastern origin stories that were floating around at the time? The, the creation stories from the surrounding Mesopotamian world and culture? Is it using symbolism to refute the symbols of those stories? So is it all, is it all straight history? Is it all straight allegory? Is it, a, is it a blend of the two somehow? Like this is the conversation. And you guys, this conversation has been going on a really long time. And so I'll tell you what I believe. Are you ready? I believe that however we read Genesis chapters 1 to 3, especially chapter 3, what it reveals to us about God and humanity is the same. The theology is the same. And so either way, here's what I believe. The story is true. In fact, it has resonated with the world's most brilliant thinkers for millennia as the truest, most insightful diagnosis of the human condition on offer. And we, when we take a deeper dive into this story, we begin to see the nature of these subtle lies that the devil utilizes. So within the world of philosophy, there are, there's three great questions of life. Number one, who is God? Number two, who are we? Or on an individual level, who am I? 
And then number three, what is the good life? What, what is the best way to live? What is the way to happiness for human beings? Put another way, questions about number one, theology. Okay, God and his activity in, in the world and our origins and all of that. Questions about number two, anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Or at an individual level, questions about identity. And then three, questions about uh, morality or sociology, like how do we best live together in the world? And what happens is, you guys, we build our lives on our answers to these questions, whatever we think they are. So notice in this short, compact story in Genesis 3, the devil takes aim with lies and deceptions at all three areas. Number one, who is God? It says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, God is not who he claims to be. He's deceiving you. He's holding out on you. He's trying to limit you. He's not really for you. You can't trust him, so trust yourself instead. This is the foundational deception. It's a distortion of who God is. It's a distortion of the vision of God, of God who, is, who is generous, like with good intentions uh, um, toward Adam and Eve and all of humanity into this God who is like petty and jealous and controlling and manipulative. And it is a gross distortion. Okay, number two, who are you? Our anthropology. What, is it, what does it mean to be a human being? Again, eat it and you will be like God. Translation, your current state and circumstances are not enough. You shouldn't feel grateful for all you have, just discontent, because all limitations on you are bad, and there's a limitation on you. Don't you realize you can ascend beyond God? You can be whatever, whoever you want, so throw off any and all limitations to do whatever the heck you want. Be true to yourself. Listen to your gut. Listen to yourself. Does any of this sound familiar in our cultural moment? You guys, these are not modern secular ideas. These are ancient, like primal ideas. And then finally, what is the good life? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Translation. Hey, ignore all the other trees in the garden that have God's full blessing and yield abundant life. Instead, just focus on the one that's off limits. The one that doesn't have God's blessing. The one that he tells you will lead to death. But look at this enticing, mouth-watering experience. Eat this, have this, do this, experience this, believe this, go here, go there. Find a way to do everything you want, and then you'll be happy. You guys, these are still the go-to lies, right? Lies about who God is, lies about who we are, what, lies about what it means to be a human being, and lies about what constitutes the good life. What will lead to a, a full and fulfilled life and deep and lasting happiness? And yeah, here's the thing, though, and this also is a really big deal. Lies by themselves have no power over us. People can lie to you all they want. It doesn't, doesn't affect you. doesn't have any power over you. Lies only have power if we believe them and live into them. For example, if, if you believe the lie that you are unlovable, that you're dirty, 
or you're unworthy of love and, and respect. However, that lie comes to you. Maybe it's a parent wound, right? Or maybe you were bullied and teased a lot at some, some season of your life. Maybe your body didn't fit the cultural ideal at one time or another. Maybe your personality didn't fit the cultural ideal. However, that lie came to you, and it is a lie to be sure, right? Because you are not unlovable. You're not unworthy of love and respect. You, you're a human being that uniquely bears the image of God. But if you believe that lie and then you begin to live as if it's true, if you let it discolor the way you interact with people, the way that you interact with your peers or your spouse or your kids or the opposite sex, if you let it affect how you behave in community, then that lie begins to have power over you. It takes root in your soul and in your body and in your life. Because you're living with with anger or hurt or insecurity or shame or fear because you become defensive and less emotionally available because you become cold or harsh or standoffish or you become a person, then you become a person that actually is harder for people to enjoy, harder to connect with. You're still loved by God, but the lie is beginning to take root in your life. Another example, if you believe the secular idea that you are nothing more than an animal with time and chance on your side, that all human morality is nothing more than a social construct designed by manipulative people to limit you and your freedom, if you believe that and then live as if it's true, that's when you give it power over you. And so many of the devil's lies orbit around the nature of freedom. What does it mean to be free? To indulge every desire that you have? It's what our world tells us. But is that freedom? To be mastered by every desire that I have, whether good or bad? I mean, our society says there's no such thing as a bad desire. We don't, that that can't be. Or is is freedom something else entirely? Does, Does indulging every desire effectively end in slavery. I mean, as, as a society, our, our definition of freedom, you think about our definition of freedom, is it setting us free? I mean, I, I'd argue that it is doing just the opposite. I mean, look at the levels of dysfunction in our culture, especially among young people. Oh my gosh. Depression, right? Anxiety, addiction, abuse, anger, fear, and so on. The, the goal of the evil one is not just destruction for you and me, but it's like the destruction of, of our entire society, humanity as a whole. Is this not the most uplifting sermon you've ever heard? <laughs> and, and, and this is what makes the, the lies so deceptive, right? They're so attractive. They're, they're so hard to resist because it seems like everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is living into them. It seems like there's just no, there's no other way. The, the devil's primary strategy is this. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that then become normalized in a broken society. And now let me say that again because that was a mouthful. Um, the devil's primary strategy, okay, not his only stri- strategy, but his primary one, is deceitful, so subtly attractive but destructive ideas that play to disordered desires that we all have within us that then become normalized in a broken society all around us. And and this is important. The lies eventually become normalized. 
Like once they make their way into the culture, they begin to sound right. They're promoted and they are celebrated almost without question. I mean, have you ever looked at past or different cultures and thought, what the heck? How could a whole society of people ever live and behave like that? You ever thought that? If you haven't thought that, you need to study history. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 think of, I think of Nazi Germany, right? I mean, what the heck? Lutheran Christians. Or I think of Christian slave owners in the U.S. What the heck? Right? Or, or Romans who didn't want infants, just abandoning them in the wilderness to die by the thousands and thousands and thousands. The practice of what they simply called exposure. Or you think of the Middle East, right, where women are, are subjugated. I mean, how in the world can that stuff happen in a whole society? How do people tolerate that? It is deceptive ideas Okay, lies that play to disordered desires, like a racist desire or a desire to subjugate other people or a desire for greed or a desire for power or pride or whatever it is. The devil gets in there and works his way in with a deceptive idea. It's an idea that plays to a disordered desire that then becomes normalized in a broken society. Now, here's the root of the problem. It is so much easier to recognize toxic ideas in a different society. I mean, the dehumanization of Nazi Germany, the suppression of women in the extremist Middle East, in China where girls are aborted by the millions simply because female babies are valued less. Like, we see the brokenness in different cultures and societies much easier. It's hard to see toxic ideas in our own culture where we live and, and move, and it's the air that we breathe. They seem normal, like they seem natural. And we, to be honest, most of the time, we can't imagine a different way. But Jesus warned, in fact, he insisted that the ways of the world, in other words, the broken parts of any given culture, will lead us to destruction. He said, wide is the road to destruction, and many are on it. But narrow is the road that leads to life. And he said, few find it. Contrary to the thinking in some Christian circles, Jesus didn't come just to die on a cross to free us from guilt so that we could leave this world and go to heaven one day. Okay, he did that. And that matters a great deal. But he also came to teach us the better way, to teach us the way to life. To follow Jesus, then, is to like trade in your mental maps and those of your culture or your society or your family of origin or even your church at times for his mental maps into joy and beauty and life and love and relationships and all of it. Jesus is inviting us to, to learn to open our hearts and to trust God again. He's taking us back to the garden and saying, I'm giving you the choice, choose He's inviting us to let him speak truth to us that will set us free because every generation has false teachers, teachers promising the way to happiness. And in his day, the false teachers in the Jewish community were the Pharisees, which is a bummer. And they were the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and they were the Greek philosophers and so on. And they had truth, but their truth was mixed with subtle lies and deceptions that were kind of wrecking the whole thing. And in our day, you guys, we have no shortage of teachers 
many people advocate ways that will eventually lead to destruction. Jesus claimed that he came with the words of life. He claimed to be legit. He claimed to be the real deal. He either was or he wasn't. He called himself the good shepherd, the gate to the good life. And he called the other teachers, anybody who taught the wrong stuff, robbers and thieves. And in John 10, Jesus said, it, he, he used this metaphor, it's so beautiful. He said, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Picking up in verse 8. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so you and I have to decide every moment of every day, whose teaching am I going to follow? Who has the right to tell me what God is like? Who knows enough about humanity to tell me who I am? Who actually knows the way to the good life? Jesus said some would hear his words, his teaching, his voice, and they would recognize it as truth. Some would hear his voice and they would respond because they would know, know that he is the good shepherd. And they would trust him and they would follow him and they would discover a life of peace and joy and beauty. In our world, there's, there's no lack of voices. There's all this noise. There's people telling us the way. As apprentices of Jesus, the whole goal of the whole deal is to learn to hear his voice. We need his way. We need his teaching. We need his mental maps, his voice. So we're going to talk for the next several weeks about how to go about that. How do we hear him? How do we follow him? For today, I just want to close by asking you to be reflective. And I just want you to think, what's been going through your heart and mind recently? I mean, has there been anxiety? Has there been fear? Has there been any of that? How about inadequacy? The feeling that, that you don't measure up. How about discouragement? The sense that things won't get better. Maybe depression, just a pervasive sadness you can't shake. I mean, be honest with yourself. What, what's been on your heart and, and your mind? And my second question is very simply, are there any lies that are contributing to how you've been feeling? Lies from the evil one in those same ancient categories. Lies about God, lies about you, lies about the good life. I mean, when you think about God, do you envision the good God of, of Jesus? Who is God? Is he angry? Is he petty? Is he, is he cruel, cold-hearted? Is he opposed to you? Or is he generous and sacrificial and loving and compassionate and gracious? Is he absent? Or is he present with you now and, and forever? Do, do you picture him as being for you? 
or opposed to you. Because what you picture matters. Is there a lie around what it means to be human, around, around who am I? I mean, what, what is it that makes you valuable? And what do you, what do you think you're lacking? And it says who? Whose voice are you hearing in your head? Are you hearing your parents' voice? Your friends? The other soccer moms? The guys from the office? Your critics? Mean people? Some 23-year-old YouTube influencer? I mean, who's telling you who you are? Who are you giving the authority to tell you who you are? Who's telling you who you should be? What, what voices give you your identity? And who's painting your picture of the good life for you? I mean, what is the good life? Who's telling you what the good life is supposed to look like? Does it hang on, on like, success? Do you need to have more success to have the good life? Do you need more pleasure, wealth, comfort? You need to change your relationship status? Isn't contingent on power or prestige or being noticed by the right people at the right time in the right way or, you know, just being recognized? Is, it, is, is the good life only available to you if somehow your circumstances change? Is, is it endlessly outside your grasp, just evading you? I mean, I just is it possible that there actually are many trees available to you in the garden? But for whatever reason you are fixated on the one that is off limits? Is there a voice telling you happiness and and contentment reside in that tree, in the one that's off limits? And are you you compromising your your values to pursue pursue what you you view as the good life? Are are you needing to cheat or to lie or deceive or or hide or just, just grasp at it? Is it possible that the thing making you unhappy isn't what you don't have. It's just who you are as you're trying to go get it, who you're becoming. Friends, the the lies are coming at us and they're coming at us fast and furious in a wave of noise. The ones we listen to will dictate the direction of our life. And only you can decide which voices to listen to and which ones to ignore. Lies only have power over you if you believe them and live into them. And so, I just want to close with this. What if Jesus really is the good shepherd? What if he really knows more about reality than any of us, than you or I? What if he's really offering to guide us into the good life? What if he really is? Man, that would be something. Jesus, I just, I thank you. I thank you for not pulling punches in your teaching. I thank you for, for coming to us and offering us the choice again and again between different trees and the direction that we're going to go with our lives. I thank you for, for not only telling us that you're the good shepherd who lays down his life, but I thank you for the compassion and the goodness and the love and kindness that you demonstrated again and again and again in your life all the way to your willingness to be, to be arrested, tortured, and executed on our behalf to set us free somehow into a different kind of life, both now and forevermore. 
And I pray that as all of us are wrestling with various voices in our life and different lies that, that are coming at us, I pray that you would, you would increase our discernment. And if any of us in this room are, are facing a particular lie in our lives right now and we're identifying it, maybe even this morning really being able to identify, hey, that's a, that's a lie and it's affecting my life. Jesus, would you meet us in that? Would you, would you strengthen us? Would you help us to see it for what it is? And would you help us to trust you instead and to trust your vision of the good life and, and your teaching about God and your teaching about who we are? Jesus, we need you. Our world needs you. Amen.